Podcast One Production. Hi, I'm Adam Shand, investigative journalist. Welcome to the Great COVID Reset. As Australians slowly emerge from isolation, what lies ahead? Is it a new world or a less safe and more impoverished version of the old one? That world seems so long ago. Life is changing in Australia as it is changing all around the world. Life is going to continue to change as we deal with the global coronavirus. In the space of a fortnight in early March, the assumptions that underpinned Australia's security and self-confidence caved in. Infection rates were climbing exponentially, following the same deadly trajectory as Italy and Spain. Fear and disbelief were rising in the community. I don't know how planes and boats are still getting into the country. Sending kids to school is not really going to help. When things start to change, well, you've got to take heed. They um, could probably utilise these churches that are empty at the moment as isolation places. We could be basically the world leaders coming out of this thing. For three weeks in April, at the height of Australia's pandemic, I was filling in as the host of a midnight to dawn radio show on the Triple M network. A wave of infection was breaking over us. It didn't seem real, and that made it all the more terrifying. I've made my living writing about crime and disorder, but the eerie silence on the streets was nothing I'd ever witnessed before. No one had, at least not in Australian cities. The peak of Australia's infection was reached on March 30. The dire predictions did not come to pass that we'd be like Italy, Spain, with an uncontrollable spread of coronavirus. We flattened the curve with an extraordinary display of unity. And as we re-emerge from isolation, Australia has an opportunity to reset everything. We can decide how much of the past will remain and how much must be consigned to history. At this moment, I personally feel like everything should change, that no individual can ever feel safe again unless everyone is safe. But maybe that feeling will pass in the coming months. I wanted to challenge my own thinking, so I spoke to some of Australia's leading voices in society, health, business and economics to see how they were feeling about the future. Dr. Mei Ling Dori is a physician, entrepreneur, and public health advocate. Her podcast, The Alternative Truth, is on Podcast One Australia. She's made a career out of aligning business with human values and sustainability. She recently wrote a devastating analysis called The Cracks Pandemic Reveals. She believes the extinction of the human race is a real possibility. In fact, she thinks it's already underway. We actually collectively need an ego death to transform. It must happen or the planet will extinguish us. Now, what is that? Describe that ego death. This pandemic in in many ways represents the coming together of a multitude of factors. It wasn't brought about by one bat or one person or one meal or one plane trip or one person with a cough. It's a byproduct of globalisation, densification, travel patterns. You could argue also reduced immunity in some people, but broadly... All of these different factors have come together to create something which has found a through line and then multiplied rapidly via our vulnerability. And I think also the, the, what you talk about as being the abstraction of people from their human selves and nature. We made that trade to get certain things. We made that trade for convenience. We made that trade for capital markets. We made that trade to bring down the price of commodities. Yeah, 
We know these 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 pandemics are coming, and our approach has been to search for a vaccine, a, a, a boxed up pharmaceutical solution, as you called it, um, rather than looking at those preconditions, those streams, those actions of the past, which lead us till today. I think that at this point in history, it's very hard for long-term collective decision-making to occur. And that's because we've got governments that work on short cycles. We've got people with time-fixed tenures where you've got to demonstrate a result, otherwise you don't have the role of CEO of whatever. And so there's a tendency to perhaps, and not even with any malintent, there's a tendency to, to sort of move towards the solutions which are going to produce a result, a scoreboard result right now, rather than to examine the deep, I guess, arc of, of history and look at, okay, well, how is humanity unfolding? Where, do we, where are we headed? Um, what do we need to do to change this trajectory more fundamentally? Well, and you make the point that, the, that we've known this has been coming. This is not the thunderstorm on a sunny day. We knew it was coming. Bill Gates predicted it. Yeah, the article um, I wrote. Yeah, no, we did. Yeah. We've known pandemic is, it's not if, it's when. I mean, 20 years ago, I think I wrote, um, Laura Garrett, um, she produced a book called The Coming Plague, pretty literal. Um, she then released a book called Betrayal of Trust, Collapse of Global Public Health Systems. Both these books were prescient and they put them on the record and you know, many people like me read them and was like jumping up and down and saying, hey, we should do more. I think convincing people with power, with capital, with decision-making capacity, that's a whole other game. So it seemed like this virus was perfectly evolved and adapted to latch onto our cells, but it also was perfectly adapted to latch onto our lifestyle and our economic system and expose all those flaws. That's what viruses do. Yeah, but common sense would dictate you would change. But are we going to change, do you think? I think some of us have already changed. I think there's, you know, there's a growing minority of people that are taking their health very, very seriously, that are committed and conscious and um, growing their own food and looking after their microbiome and meditating. And there's, you know, lots of green shoots around the place. Just the question is, can we mainstream that? Can everyone be the beneficiary of those sort of enlightened lifestyles. And yet the narrative seems to have been about frontline health workers saving us and researchers saving us with a vaccine which would allow us to return to... Previous trajectory of decline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is... And look, I was a frontline health worker and I don't want to take away from the work they do. None of us wants to live in a community where if you fall off your bike and get run over by a tram, you can't go to an emergency room and get really good surgical care. We want that. I think that what you're pointing to is, I guess, let's call it a base load of oblivion that most of us get around with when we think, okay, yeah, I can just sort of eat crap and not sleep and, you know, live off Red Bull for a bit and it won't make a difference. Collectively, it all does make a difference. And that's the thing. We're at a point where we've kind of, we've used our bodies a bit like a credit card over and over. And and now, you know, the bank's coming to collect. So- how do we retool our society, our economies to avoid, to be more pandemic ready? I think it's it's multifactorial. We need transformation at every level. So let's work back from what's in the public consciousness. If we look at sort of our healthcare systems and the, the things that have been done really well is that we did have some enlightened political decision-making, certainly at a state level, which I, I understand trickled up to the top. And 
that sort of stuff needs to be a more ongoing conversation. Like how can our hospitals and healthcare workers have their own supplies of um, critical materials, be it PPE or reagents for testing, test facilities? How can we have all of that stacked in? Because there was a bit of a panic when this pandemic hit to retool and pivot our healthcare system to deal with a sudden expansion in caseloads. I think working back from that, we can go, okay, how can we maintain good hygiene across the community, whether it's in business or sports facilities? How can we reinstate some boundaries and barriers to prevent things just spreading from the the locker room to the supermarket in one day? Um, But I think down at an individual level, I think the question is, what's it going to take to convince people that the, the biggest impact that could be created is people taking a group of their own health and investing in their long-term health by reforming their habit. If there's a take-home message, it's that the coronavirus has demonstrated up close and personal just how connected the world is. The first case that was that occurred in um, Melbourne was straight out of Wuhan. And, um, you know, the I think it was the Doherty Institute was one of the first globally to isolate the virus and to share all that code globally. And so we're seeing both the best and worst of humanity through that lens. Yeah, and I, yeah, if we want to be safe as a globe, I think everyone's got to have a degree of public health security. Well, we're all putting the, the house on a vaccine at the moment. That'll be the out, way out of this. But how foolish is that? Um, that is a very loaded question. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I, I, I think it's foolish. Yeah, well, I would say that banking on a vaccine is, I guess, glossing over the power each of us has to affect the outcome. And the biggest thing we can do is reinforce our own health. And I'm I'm not saying let's not try for a vaccine because there are many people in our community who are, say, older, immunocompromised, who are going to have limited opportunity to upregulate their immune system. But for the rest of us, we should be doubling down on our, you know, diet, exercise, lifestyle. If you're into cold exposure, give that a nudge. If you're into grinding up turmeric and creating your own elixirs, give that a nudge. There's huge amount of upside given Australia's chronic disease burden for every Australian to kind of take it up a notch and try a bit harder. Mm. A great lifestyle is the best investment you can you can make. Yeah. I think all of this, Adam, is also a call for people to enjoy the present. We're very lucky in Australia, and I think that as concerned as I have been for my friends overseas and family overseas, it's also just rammed home the point of how fortunate we are to live on an island. Yes, it's Mm. expensive to fly anywhere, and yes, your Nikes cost twice as much, but... Keep wearing them for a while. Exactly. Put a bit of paper in the bottom. (laughs) But I I think... you know, for me, I feel just so immensely lucky to have a have a passport to a country where we've got a good public healthcare system. We've got a government that they listen, they do listen, mm. and um, you know, we've got an amazing quality of life. You're feeling optimistic, though. Broadly, I am feeling optimistic. But you're so negative on everything you're saying. How does that compute? Well, I'm not trying to sound negative in the things that I've been saying in terms of what I've been writing. All I'm saying is that. We created this. We are active participants in this crisis. And it's sometimes invisible to us because, like, it's hard to feel your drop in the bucket. It's hard to join the dots between I ate that extra muffin and now my jeans don't fit because it's not an instant feedback loop. 
But I think that if we can sort of get into our bigger brains and our more magnanimous selves, we can arrive at the conclusion that, yes, we've all been part of this co-creation of this crisis, and equally, we can be part of the solution. So Dr. Mei-Ling advocates that we cannot return to the past but only move forward to new solutions. I wonder whether that's possible, given our entrenched habits and political economy of the world that we've created. Dr. Keith Souter is considered one of Australia's most influential global academics. His podcast, Global Truths, deals with the political and economic events that have shaped our world. His message on coronavirus is, don't get carried away. Some things will change, but many will stay the same. I think the point we need to emphasise is that this is a revolutionary era in the sense that this, although we've had previous financial crises, this is the first time that a government has shut down an economy. Right Now, previously, it's been the bad behaviour of banks or financial speculators, but this time it's the government in the interests of health, quite legitimately, but it's the government that has closed down the economy. This is totally unprecedented. We have no economics textbook to give us any guidance as to how to get out of this mess. So what do you think happens from here? What's your gut feel based on your knowledge of global politics and economics? Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm living in Australia. <laughs> so I think I. that... Um, the Australian government has been following good advice. So if you cast your mind back to the 2008 financial crisis, the Reserve Bank in Australia said to the then Australian government, go hard, go early, go household. In other words, start getting money out into the pockets of people at the household level and do it quickly. And that was what saved Australia. Back into, you know, Australia did not have a recession in 2008. All other Western countries had financial problems. We were the wonder down under. We've had the longest consecutive period of economic growth in the history of the Western world. The records begin in 1750. So up until February of this year, Australia has done remarkably well. The Economist magazine calls us the, the wonder down under. Hmm. And so th what has been significant is that they took that advice from the Reserve Bank, plus the fact you had economic growth in China, which kept us going. Uh, so we avoided the turmoil back in 2008. And hopefully the Australian government will follow the advice again um, and not play political tricks. It's good that the opposition have been so cooperative and are not trying to score points off the current government. We're light years ahead of what you see in the United States at the moment. Um, and so I'm happy that we're in Australia. But remember, it's a totally unprecedented time. There is no textbook that covers uh, a situation in which the government now has to restart the economy. Even in mm. World War II, when the economy was obviously transformed because of the preparations for fighting the Germans and the Japanese, um, nonetheless, economic activity had continued. In fact, it increased. Well, and the... the History of the 20th century, in economic terms, is one of creative destruction. It's the Joseph Schumpeter mm. theory. Yep. And we accept that as the norm. Uh, is this another moment of creative destruction? Do we see a new world forming out of this, or will the old world reassert itself, do you think, Keith? It's a, it's a mixture of both. So Joseph Schumpeter's theory of creative destruction, which I support, uh, not all economists do, 
But his idea was that you end up always with a, a what's called a dynamic economy. In other words, change is always occurring. You never reach a point of equilibrium. Uh, people who are studying economics at school do get taught about equilibrium, right? So school economics is not really that, in my view, worthwhile. Schumpeter had it right, that we're in this process of continuous change. And we've got a number of changes that are underway anyway. So we obviously have with the robotics revolution, jobs are being lost to automation, new jobs are opening up because of automation, got all, all sorts of fancy titles now for people doing information technology, artificial intelligence, etc. cetera. Um, you've got changes that are being brought about because of the environmental challenges that we face. Um, and now, of course, we have the, the issue of disease challenges, such as the coronavirus. And some people would argue, look, this is just the beginning of a series of natural disasters that we're going to have. So if climate change continues and we see an increase in water levels, you will have increased coastal flooding. So plenty of new jobs will be opened up in terms of building seawalls and trying to protect shorelines, etc. So it's a period of a huge amount of change. For me, what has been valuable in a macabre sort of way, it has actually forced the government to think of some of the deeper issues in our society. When you think that, generally speaking, in media terms, the top 20 most popular programs usually on television, 17 are on sport and three are on cooking. Now there's a new sense of seriousness. Now how long that is going to last, I don't know. That's where I get a little sceptical. People say, oh, my life is going to be changed forever. I'm not, well, unless tragically you die, I don't think it is going to be changed. I was um, broadcasting on 9-11, 2001, and, and I was listening to Americans saying, oh, my life will be totally transformed. I'm going to reevaluate my life. Well, humans go back to a default position and they go back to interest in some fairly um, low, in my view, low-level issues of sport and cooking, et cetera. Yes. Uh, so they, they don't really suddenly say, ah, I've got to start thinking about a world with a greater sense of seriousness and focus on the big picture. Um, I, and I think that that'll probably happen once we get out of, away from the coronavirus. I think that the human mentality, human nature, they don't seem to change very much from one millennium to the next. What we are seeing are changes in the technology and economic structures and the stability within certain countries. Yeah, because part of the narrative of the left, if you like, through this period has been one of almost that sort of Buddhist-style death of self, that somehow this is the moment where this all gets reset. It sounds like you're sceptical of all that, Keith. I am. I, I'm sorry to say. Clearly, you know, for someone like myself who works in this area all the time, I'm glad that I'm now being asked to broadcast on more serious topics. But I'm also a realist. As I say, I lived through 2001, the 9-11 tragedy, um, and there were really not much change within human nature as a result of that. We ended up with a, a whole new security industry. A lot of people have made money out of terrorism even though the number of Americans who die because of terrorism is now each year less than the number who die in their bath at home or fall off ladders. But nonetheless, we've got a whole new industry based around terrorism. Uh, so you, you've got, obviously, the, these sort of economic structures, which certainly do change. It may well be that we're only going to have one airline in this country rather than two airlines. So we, as Warren Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. In other words, companies that were sort of pushed themselves out to the margin had very few financial reserves. They are the ones who are going to be running into problems and they're the ones who need to get 
or hope to get government assistance. But I think for ordinary Conservative people who have not become financially overextended, not heavily in debt, are very cautious in their lifestyle, they will ride through this. It's going to be bumpy, but they will survive. And I think that element of human nature, that continuity for good or ill, will continue. But there will be changes, obviously, anyway. But looking at Australia, there's been a lot of discussion about just-in-time inventory, globalisation, yeah. supply chains and so forth. Do we do we now go to a fortress Australia? Do we wind back to the early 70s when before Whitlam began the, the removal of tariffs and protection? Um, I think there will be some element of that, certainly. Um, I'm certainly dissecting a note in my uh, interviews that I'm getting people who are saying, can we build up more domestic capacity? Uh, uh, the the, the just-in-time is very important. You see, what has happened is that um, in the 1930s, when we started to get out of the economic depression that we were in, um, there was this notion of redundancy. In other words, that you built extra capacity into something. So the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which I can see from this window, that can take more vehicles than currently go over them because it was built in the 1930s and it was built with extra rivets, extra strong rivets, et cetera, because that's the mentality that people had in those days. In the last 40 years, we've been going through an economic revolution and it's one that is based on just in time. In other words, you narrow the margins, you don't have surplus fat, you get rid of surplus fat everywhere. Now, if the economy continues to boom, that's fine. But if you run into a bit of a problem, then you suddenly need that extra fat and you don't have it. You don't have that redundancy built into the system. You're working on very narrow margins. And I think that there are some people saying, well, perhaps we have gone too far in the direction of squeezing redundancy out of our planning, that we need to find ways of bringing a little more fat into the system. For example, just in time, uh, storing of items. So in the old days, a store would have... Um, a number of things on the shelf, so to speak, or in warehouses nearby. Sure. Just in time means that you, instead of stockpile stuff, which is dead capital, according to some economists, you just get stuff immediately as you need it. If you've got a good supply chain, that'll work. If you haven't got a good supply chain, which is a situation we're going to get into now, then you're going to end up with a crisis. Another example is the uh, international agreement to which Australia is a party, saying that we will keep a certain amount of oil in reserves onshore in this country. Australia is not living up to that obligation. So if we had a disruption to shipping somehow, we would be in a very difficult situation within a matter of weeks because we have not got three months' supply up our sleeve already onshore in reserves. And how do you feel? Are you optimistic personally for you and your family in the country? Um I, I'm Well, I'm by nature optimistic. Um, and I think if there's one thing you can say about this uh, current crisis is that, uh, generally speaking, those who are pessimistic will become even more pessimistic and those who are optimistic will somehow carry on through the crisis. Um, it is an unprecedented situation, but I would say it's an exciting and challenging time to be alive. I've, I'd much rather be alive than be dead. It's just so fascinating as to the, the future into which we're heading. And, I, and so I encourage my um, uh, Boston University students always to be optimistic, always to be positive, and act on the assumption that there are always opportunities, no matter how gloomy a situation may be. As I continued talking to more people, it seemed that Dr. Keith Souter was not the only optimist. Economist Tim Harcourt began his career in the mid-1980s as Australia's economy was undergoing massive reforms under the Hawke-Keating government. 
I've been talking to him for 35 years, ever since he worked for the government in trade. He has a podcast, The Airport Economist, on Podcast One. He says Australia is well-placed to weather the storm, but we will withdraw into ourselves for some period of time. You may not recall this, but we first spoke, I'm pretty sure, in about 1987 or 1988, even, when you were working for Austrade, and Australia was basically throwing out its old model. We were going to a trade with Asia model, we were dropping off the UK, we were dropping protection, this was all the go. That's right, it was the great Hawke-Keating reforms of the 80s and 90s that basically had opened up the economy. We sort of uh, joined the Asian century. We turned the tyranny of distance, if you like, into the power of proximity, reformed our own economy. And, of course, uh, right when Australia opened up to the world, thanks to Hawke and Keating, uh, Asia became very prominent. So our timing was uh, pretty much perfect. Well, but was it though? Because now we look at the whole globalisation model, the just-in-time inventory, all that type of stuff. And some people say in the seeds of that development was the vulnerability that coronavirus has exploited in recent months. I think the the upside of globalisation was that we uh, basically saw goods and services move around the world very quickly. We saw an incredible boom in our exports and the wages paid to workers in export industries and across the economy. But the downside of it is, of course, if things can move quickly, so can a virus. And I think uh, one of the lessons of this period is that um, at the end of the day, we're nation states and we look to our own governments. And one noticeable thing about the coronavirus is that really the international institutions, whether they be the UN or the EU or the... uh, the WHO, aren't much help in a crisis and uh, people have really looked to national governments for solutions. So what do you see happening out of this? We're speaking to a range of people and the views go from this is the end of the old world, the death of self, the idea that we have to have a, a Schumpeter-style creative destruction like never before to get through this. Do you think everything's going to change or, or is that just a, you know, a longing for change from people who've, been, who've said something's wrong with our system for a long time? I think it's going to be a reset of globalisation. I don't think it's going to be a rejection, but I do think a few things people are going to think about very carefully. One is global supply chains. Uh, another is uh, the role of foreign investment. And lastly, I think the view of the nation states is going to change. I don't think anyone wants some unfettered global economy where finance can move around the world instantly with goods and services and labour. And I think uh, basically we're going to rethink some of those things, uh, including things like outsourcing that have been popular for a while, but even before coronavirus, uh, they were uh, starting to wane even then. Do you think China's dominance in recent years as a cheap avenue for manufacturing or sourcing of components, will that continue? Are we seeing an epoch-changing moment for China? I think we saw that changing in China about 10 years ago. They were sort of moving from being a nation of shippers to a nation of shoppers uh, and moving more towards domestic consumption investment, you know, building their second and third tier cities, those little country towns of uh, 11 million people uh, and 33 million people and so on. So I think that was already happening. I think the big difference is now we've realised that there's nothing free trade or free market in the China textbook. It's really about dominating supply chains and uh, dominating uh, investment and infrastructure in in vulnerable nations. And uh, that's not anything to do with the free market or free trade. It's just geopolitics. So I think people are going to be rethinking that relationship. I think we're still going to 
sell rocks and crops to China and be involved uh, as good trading partners. But I think there'll be more thinking about control, investment, and I think all nations are going to go through this transformation and also think about um, uh, the diversity of our trading partners. Do you think we go back to a Fortress Australia kind of idea? I think there's a few people who want a bit more Ben Chifley, a little bit less Paul Keating when they think about the economy, uh, you know, in things like airlines and, and utilities. And I think um, in some ways you can see certain generations of people thinking about the days when, you know, it was a scandal of unemployment hit 2%, uh, for instance. And you can see why people would see the past as stability. But on the on the other hand, living standards have improved. The access and opportunity has improved. I think uh, no one wants to go back to the white Australia policy. I don't think anyone wants to go back to high tariffs, but they certainly probably do want to reset. They probably want a balance of uh, having a uh, prosperous economy with good ties to the world, but uh, they do want uh, decision-making in Australian hands. And uh, and certainly I think they do want uh, a strong role for government and the government itself uh, whether it be the, the federal government or the premiers together uh, with the various public health officials have done a very good job so far in, in tackling the coronavirus. Do you think building a brand new economy post-corona is like reconstructing after a war? Well, it is in the sense that um, the curtin Chifley government was fighting the Pacific War uh, and in Europe, of course, and at the same time, they were designing this post-war reconstruction and uh, starting new industries. Uh, they found things like, uh, you know, women going and working into the fact in, in the factories. They found, oh well, half of our workforce is actually very useful in uh, uh, in the labour force. So I think there'll be some phenomena that they experimented with during the war that they might want to continue. So I think there may be acceleration of certain things that we've seen, whether it be. Uh, telecommuting, using technology uh, much more in our, in our jobs, it may be that that's sort of been sped up and we might want to retain some of those elements uh, post-corona. And indeed, I think um, there'll probably be a lot of, lot of opportunities because we've seen some things work a lot better than what we thought they would when they are, I guess, very theoretical or, or just considered quite fringe issues. Yeah, and I guess it's that making decisions while in a fog of uncertainty. How do you think we've gone with that so far, Tim Harcourt, and what does the future look like? How long before we get some certainty in the economic numbers to say, well, okay, our balance has been right? Well, the famous Greek philosophers used to say, all I know is I don't know. Uh, And it's very hard, I think, to make decision-making when the data is unknown. It's changing each day. I'd say that the public health data and the economic data has been quite hard to track, but people have made reasonable decisions under uncertainty. If you can compare Australia to the UK or the United States, uh, the Europeans, uh, the Swedes, some of the other countries in Southeast Asia and Latin America, I'd say we've done reasonably well. One thing I find interesting is people's perspective. I'm quite amazed, Adam, and I love footy like like anyone, uh, the NRL and the AFL thinking that the competition is the most important thing you know, a very important sporting competition, but needs to be put in perspective when, uh, you know, health workers are busting their guts in uh, in intensive care units in hospitals. Well, that's right. So listen, as of this moment, and we are going to revisit this in the coming months, Tim, you seem quite optimistic. You think that there's going to be obviously some pretty big changes, but the core of our economy, the way we live, the way our economy is set up, you think will survive this change? Oh, it'll be reformed. It'll be a reset of globalisation, not a rejection. 
but I think it's different than the Great Depression or, or even a recession because you've deliberately you know, put in social distancing, you've deliberately uh, shut down the economy to look after a public health issue. It's not been an you know, accidental collapse of the economy. It's quite different. So in the same way that uh, if things are going a lot better than we thought, which they are, uh, and we're getting good news on the public health front, I think the, the confidence can be restored reasonably quickly. But the economy will look different and it probably should look different, I think. So what is the thing, the one threat to your model or your optimism that might wake you up in the middle of the night to sort of say, shit, what if that happens? Oh, if we don't find a vaccine, uh, if the thing hangs around uh, a lot longer, uh, I think that would be something that worries me uh, because you can keep the economy on hold or, or, you know, downplayed for a few months, but I don't think you can do it, you know, for a couple of years without really serious damage health-wise as well as economic. So I hope a vaccine is found in Australia. That'd be great. Come back for part two of the great COVID reset, where we'll talk about our lives just ahead as individuals and as a nation. The Great COVID Reset is written and produced by Adam Shan. Mixing, editing, and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grimberg. Research by Nolly Wei Shan. Graphics by Jamie Lee Garner. The Great COVID Reset is a Podcast One Australia production.